Hi, we're Eliza, Allison, and Carlin, and we're the hosts of Resolved Mysteries Podcast. Our podcast follows the 80s and 90s television show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack. We have a love for true crime and the unsolved. If you don't remember Unsolved Mysteries, we forgive you, but you don't have to know to get into our show. If you like true crime stuff, ghost stuff, alien stuff, or just stories about weird shit like Bigfoot, this is your podcast. The stories we cover range from totally ridiculous to truly heartbreaking. We do detailed research on all of the segments that Unsolved Mysteries aired, then drink some wine and give you the latest updates on every case. We talk about stories that will leave you laughing, crying, and occasionally outraged. Resolve Mysteries podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite pods. Join us and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. the podcast this is crime culture this is Haley. this is caitlin yay that's that (laughs) (laughs) that's the intro that's the weird intro and this is the intro um we're talking about the amityville horror which this is one yeah is so good this is one that the pop culture side of it has kind of overtaken the um the actual crime yes definitely and i I am splitting this into two different crimes so we're going to start with the defeo murders and then we're going to go into the lutz haunting which is what everyone kind of knows yeah i was gonna say not many people talk about the defeo murders and they're creepy (laughs) and it's kind of the basis for the haunting that comes later on so to get straight into it so um around 6 30 p.m on november 13th 1974 Robert Butch DeFeo Jr. burst into Henry's bar in Amityville, Long Island, and yelled, please, you've got to help me. I think my father and mother are shot. Butch and a few friends left the bar and rushed around the corner and down the street to 112 Ocean Avenue, which was the DeFeo's home, which was called High Hopes. Sometimes rich people name their houses. Um, So when the group arrived, the house was dark and it was unlocked. The DeFeo's dog Shaggy was tied up um, to the inside kitchen back door and started barking when the men walked in. Butch's friend Bobby Kelsky led the group upstairs and into the master bedroom, and when he flipped on the lights, they saw Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Louise DeFeo sprawled face down on their bed, shot to death. Ugh. Yeah, not something you want to walk into, but also something they kind of knew when they were walking into the house. So yeah. I guess they were kind of mentally prepared for it. True. Um, well, probably trained for it, I would assume. No, no, these were just friends of Butch DeFeo. Oh, I thought you said the police. No, the police haven't come yet, so... Okay, that's fine. I'm just hard of hearing. <laughs> so the men continued through the house to find the bodies of all the DeFeo children. Dawn, 18, Allison, 13, Mark, 12, and John Matthew, 9, all in similar <sighs> positions to their parents. Yikes. So that means Butch was the only survivor. I want to say he was... I think I say it maybe later. He was like 23, 24, maybe. Oh, um, okay. So he's older. Yeah. yeah. So another of the group, uh, Joey Yeswit, called the police within 10 minutes. Um, and then Officer Kenneth Greguski of the Amityville Village. 
police department arrived and they saw the group of men trying to console Butch. Now, there is a transcript of the um, the 911 call and it is wild <laughs> because the police make this guy say and spell his name I want to say four or five times really? before they finally get into like, hey, what's your problem? <laughs> and it's just, it, it baffles my mind. Like nobody would handle a 911 call like that today. Uh, it's Probably. in one of the, um, the websites that I used for like a reference. So I'll post it on the website. You could read it. It's, it's nuts. I wonder if that's just like a sign of the times though. I don't know. Because, um, like an episode that uh, we're going to do later on, on the, um, the women that were held in the, um, the basement in Ohio, the Ariel Castro kidnapping. Well, I don't, I didn't say when we're doing it. I'm just saying we're going to get to it. But yeah, frankly, I don't know when we're doing it. So that's fine. One of the problems of that case was the 911 call when Amanda Berry called the police after she got out of the house and, the the person answering was like not not helpful not like like just not like ignorant to the fact that like this woman was held for 11 years and just escaped the worst situation anyone could ever go through and they hung up like they didn't keep her on the line what which is what you're supposed to, yeah you're supposed to keep the person on the line until the police arrive yeah. and the guy was just like okay we'll wait there and she was like uh, okay and then they hung up. Wow. So, and that was in 2011, 13, something. I'll get the confirmed dates when we actually do the episode. But yeah, that's pretty crazy. So that's... it's not just 1974 911 calls. It's... Ew. Yeah. Um, so anyway, back to Amityville. So um, the police arrive and the whole group of guys are trying to console Butch. Uh, he was pounding his fists on his car and yelling, I'm not going back into the house. My mother and father are dead. When the group and Officer Graguski finally calmed Butch and got him back into the house, they sat him at the kitchen table. As Officer Graguski inspected the crime scene, he immediately called headquarters to report the murders, and soon Ocean Avenue was swarming with police officials, reporters, and curious locals. Suffolk County Detective Gas Gasper... Randazzo. Randazzo. Interesting Rand name. I, probably Randazzo. I, there was, I, like a lot of, like, you know how one family will settle in one specific area? Yes. There were a lot of Randazzos around where I grew up. Yeah? <laughs> a lot of them. The, so many. The first name is the thing that threw me, Gasper. Yeah. Gasper, the friendly <laughs> Randazzo. Gasper. So Gasper Randazzo was the first to question Butch at the scene and through sobs, Butch was able to tell detective Randazzo that, um, he hadn't been at the house. He was at work. Um, he told him how he had found the bodies and who he thought was responsible. Butch said that mafia hitman, uh, Louis Fellini was responsible and, it was suggested that Butch be put in protective custody in case the killings were linked to organized crime because, again, he was the family's only survivor, so you would think if it was a hit out on the family, somebody would want to come back and finish the job. Right. So Butch said that Fellini had briefly lived with the DeFeos and knew where Ronald Sr. had kept his collection of cash and gems. And 
Uh, while Butch's questioning continued, he began to cooperate more and admitted to some petty robberies that he and his friends had taken part in. Um, when the detectives felt that they got enough information, they left Butch to sleep and then they went back into the house. Investigators soon discovered boxes of Marlin 35 caliber ammunition in his room, which matched the murder weapon. And further questioning of Butch's friends revealed that he was a quote-unquote gun fanatic. And oh. Yeah, so that's when the pieces all began to fall into place for the detectives. Um, the next morning, the detectives went to wake Butch, who was still asleep on the cot in the police file room. As Butch was waking up, homicide detective George Harrison began to inform him of his rights, and Butch became anxious, saying, you don't have to do that. Get Fellini. He's the guy you want, not me. Detective Dennis Rafferty and Lieutenant Robert Dunn took over questioning. Rafferty continued to press at the discrepancies in Butch's version of the events and his involvement. Butch continued to lie, claiming that he had been awakened by Louis Fellini at gunpoint and... Uh, made to accompany him as he shot each person in his family in each of their rooms. Uh, he went, yeah, which is not something you want to be waking up to or have ever experienced. No. Um, but also not what his original story was. True. Uh, so he went even further to describe how he had discarded of the evidence in a sewer in Brooklyn. And Rafferty asked, did it really happen that way? And Butch finally confessed, no, it all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. So what we do know is that Butch DeFeo's childhood was uh, monetarily very comfortable, but not um, content. Um, his father was a domineering and abusive man, and his mother seemed to fade into the background under his overbearing personality. And as a result, Butch grew increasingly troubled as a young adult, and he began to rely on drugs and alcohol to cope, and he lashed out physically and even threatened his father with a gun. Butch's parents hoped that a weekly stipend and gifts would appease their troubled son, and by the age of 18, Ronald technically held a job at the family-owned auto dealership, but rarely bothered to show up ever. So. Wow. On that day in 1974, it wasn't unusual that Butch decided to leave work at noon out of boredom. He met up with friends at a bar, uh, constantly calling his house to no answer and complaining about it to anyone who would listen. He eventually left, and the next time anyone saw him was when he burst into the bar that evening. After mounting an unsuccessful insanity defense, Butch DeFeo was found guilty of six counts of murder on November 21st, 1975, and he was eventually sentenced to six concurrent sentences of 25 years to life, according to CBS New York. Okay. So that is basically the... I'm kind of giving uh, the spark-noted version of all yeah. this stuff, just because the pop culture side is There's so a lot to cover. dense. Right. Yeah. So here's the question of, did he actually do it? So there were some things that didn't quite add up. There were no signs of any struggle present on the bodies or evidence that they were drugged in any way. No neighbors were awoken um, to hearing any gunshots, at least not reported. Um, only the DeFeo's family dog barking at night. In later versions of Butch's changed story, he alleges that his sister Dawn killed their father and that's when their distraught mother killed all the siblings. In this scenario, Butch only killed his mother 
And then another telling by Butch in 1990, he said that um, Dawn shot all the DeFeos and then he killed Dawn. So he has multiple versions of this story. All of them kind of seem not super plausible. Yeah, I was going to say, like, none of these seem like the truth. Yeah. So there are other theories that there was a second shooter in the house and even more that involve, of course, as we're going to get to, demons and ghosts and an old Indian burial ground. Which, good. It's they're all nuts theories. But the prosecution argued that while the drug-abusing DeFeo was troubled, he knew that what he was doing when he committed the murders and a jury convicted him on all counts of the murders, as I've said. Mm-hmm. So even though some of the things didn't add up, the, I think the most interesting one is that people complained about the dog barking, but no one heard at least six gunshots. Oh. And I've at been... At least six. At least six. Well, there were six members of the family. All? That's true. That's true. But that just still seems like a really high (laughs) number. Like, think about living in that neighborhood. And especially if you've, like, seen any bitter piece of it, it's a pretty, like, suburban, like... The houses are not super far apart. Yeah. They're not on, like, acres and acres of land. Yeah. Like, imagine waking up in the middle of the night to not one. One gunshot is scary enough. Not one, not two, six gunshots. Yeah, if you hear one loud noise and it startles you awake and then you like fall back asleep because you don't hear anything else. But this is six times. Too many. Too many. Like I'd freak out if I was just a neighbor. And another thing that I just thought of is this house is like it's kind of like on a waterfront, like it backs up to water. Yeah. So gunshots over water must sound even louder. That's yeah, that's a really good point. what if any of those windows were open? It's November, so I don't know if any of the windows were open. But Probably not. November. Think about November in New York. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. This is also before global warming, warming really started to hit. True. Um, definitely not. Probably definitely not. <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably definitely. Allegedly not. Allegedly. So that is the story of the DeFeo murders. So now we're going to get into the Lutz haunting. So just 13 months after the massacre, the Lutz family purchased the five-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bathroom house for $80,000. What? $80,000. This, like, gorgeous, like... That's like nothing like, for in New York besides? Yeah. Well, the reason why it was $80,000 is because six people were murdered there. Yeah. Um, so... The family knew the history of the house and they decided together that it wouldn't be a problem and that they could they couldn't pass up this great deal. So, I believe the name is Father Pecoraro. Yeah. Uh, he he arrived to bless the family's new home on the same day that they were moving in, December Smart. 18th, 1975. So, when the Lutzes unloaded their moving van, the Catholic priest entered the house and began his ritual blessing alone. He made his way up the stairs to the second floor and entered the northeast bedroom, which had been Mark and John DeFeo's room. I believe it is the room when you see the pictures of the house. It's the one that has the two, like, crescent-shaped windows that yeah. look like eyes, like the, the creepy windows. We'll post a photo of it, too, but yeah. I'm sure if, you've know, if you know anything about this case, you know the windows. It looks like so, Monster House. 
It does, yes. <laughs> uh, it's, this was probably one, one of the basis for any type of haunted house, because it looks creepy. Yeah. Um, so he sprinkled holy water around the room and recited a prayer, and he said that he heard a loud male voice allegedly saying, get out. And although the priest supposedly did not tell the family about the voice, he did warn about the room, saying, don't use it as a bedroom, don't let anyone sleep in there. According nope. to good housekeeping... <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's gonna be a hell of a note for me. Um, so, according to Good Housekeeping, uh, an article dated April 1977, the Lusses followed the priest's advice and turned the room into a sewing room. Which I don't know if I would put um, anything sharp objects, like, <laughs> yeah, right? Needles <laughs> or sharp objects in a room where a voice just screamed, "Get out!" Though, I mean, what were they going to do? Turn it into a computer room? It was 1975 or 78, did you say? 78. 70, uh, 75. 75. Oh, that's what I started. Yeah. To, damn it. Um, <laughs> but I'm, t- yeah. I'm terrible with these things. It wouldn't be a computer things. room. Yeah. Um, I mean, they had a limited, like, they can't turn it into a playroom for the kids because what if they decide to take a nap? Yeah. Like, I mean, I can understand running out of options i mean storage could be one but why would you buy a five bedroom house and then just turn one of the bedrooms into storage also i can't imagine they wouldn't have an attic i don't know i don't have the the floor plan of the house but i don't know if it had an attic because that room was so it was in almost the the, like the ridge of the house anyway i don't know um, i don't know this has become house hunters So, from the very first night that they moved in, the family claimed that they felt strange sensations. Jay Anson had written in his best-selling book, The Amityville Horror, which we will definitely talk more about later, um, that the family's personalities all drastically changed. On one occasion in the book, the young couple beat their children with a strap and a large wooden spoon. Um, After moving into the house, the children apparently had become brats. Which... I don't know. They're in a a fancy house in Long Island. But also they're kids. So how bratty exactly are we talking? Are they just kids being kids? And what age did they turn? Yes. Because that'll dictate if they're brats or not. Yes. What age did they turn? What is their expiration date? I've I've babysat more kids than I care to ever think about again. And some of them at a certain age were horrible. It's the terrible teens. Younger than that. I would say the worst age for a boy is probably... Eight. Between eight and ten. Yeah, that's fair. Girls are always kind of just chill. That's us. (laughs) What can I say? Yeah. So after (laughs) the kids became brats, so from there on, things got even worse. Um, There was a stench of bile... um, the smell of cheap perfume. The family became increasingly confused by the mysterious smells. Uh, it seemed to come from different locations in the house, not from one central place where you could be like, oh, it's the kitchen. It might be the kitchen garbage. Let's take the garbage out. Let's scrub this area. It just came from different places at different times. Um, black stains appeared on the toilets and couldn't be lifted with any cleaner. Ew. Yeah, another one. Green slime ran down the walls. Oh, but that may have just been all the kids are doing that these days. That's fine. I don't know, man. Uh, there seemed they just, to be they no, like slime. There seemed to be no reason or source for the slime. 
They just, just kind of showed up. Nic- they watch a lot of Nickelodeon. Yeah. That's all. In 1975. Um, here's a, here's a real kicker. Hundreds of flies appeared in the sewing room. Remember the room that, uh, the priest said not to use? Um, so hundreds of flies appeared in that room and it was the dead of winter. So where the fuck were they coming from? No. Yeah. And according to Anson in his book, the phenomenon then turned physical. Kathy was victimized by unseen touches and, uh, some of them were even strong enough to force her to pass out. And um, George would sit for hours by the, um, by the fireplace because he suffered from constant chills, even though the house was warm. I mean, he had fires going at all times. Um, in addition, he would wake up nightly at 3.15 a.m., reasoning uh, that there was a connection between that hour and the hour that the DeFeos were killed. In reality, the time of deaths were never determined by the medical examiner, so that can't be, um, there's nothing to substantiate that. Um, As the months progressed, apparently the situation worsened again for the family. Anson reported that George awoke one night to witness his wife transform into a 90-year-old hag, which just could be, I don't know, a night terror. Menopause. Oh. (laughs) That too. (laughs) Uh, the next night, she began levitating off the bed, forcing her husband to grab her before she floated away. No, no. Mm-mm. Again, let's let's look at the year. It was 1975. Do you know what my parents were doing in 1975? All of the drugs. Each other. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if they were dating then. They your parents. Been. Your parents were never not dating. Your parents have been they together since birth. Then. I decided. I decided. Okay. <laughs> Your parents have uh, always been together. It's just been chosen. I don't know if uh, there was any talk about whether any of these were drug-fueled visions. But, but they sound like it. I'm going to say it was 1975. So and- realizing that the family needed help, they contacted the same Catholic priest that blessed the house and asked him to return to perform another blessing. So, according to Jay Anson's book, the priest uh, had been feeling the after effects of the first blessing, and whatever was plaguing the family also bothered him. After failing to get the priest to return, the family took matters in their own hands, and armed with a crucifix, they walked throughout the house reciting the Lord's Prayer, and a chorus of voices erupted in response, asking them, quote, will you stop? <laughs> Which could have just been neighbors being like, all right, these people are fucking crazy. And just keep screaming yeah. the Lord's Prayer over and over again. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't but know. But apparently, it's demons. So, what up, demons? It's me, your boy. <laughs> the most incredible part of Anson's story was the claim that the daughter of the Lutzes had befriended an invisible red-eyed pig named Jody. What? Quote, <laughs> yeah. Quote, Jody could not be seen by anyone unless it wanted to. All times, uh, it was a little bit bigger than a teddy bear, and other times, it was bigger than the house. Um, George Luss explained this um, on a TV show, In Search Of, in October 1979. Um, he served as a consultant on this show. So, okay, we'll get into the Lutzes maybe uh, claiming some things for money. Oh, uh-oh, okay. We'll get to that. 
So uh, one night while coming back from the boathouse, Anson said that George Lutz witnessed Jody standing behind his stepdaughter in their in her bedroom. Kathy Lutz's introduction to the daughter's friend was just as disturbing. And on a separate evening, she was startled to see two red eyes peering through the darkness from a window, which nice horrifying. <laughs> Never want to see that. Cute. The book reported that the malevolent forces caused significant property damage to the house, such as the front door being ripped off its hinges, windows being smashed, banisters being torn from their fittings, damage to the garage door, water damage from hurricane force winds, which local meteorological stations had no record of. Uh, Even their dog, Harry, who was a Malamute Labrador mix, supposedly suffered from strange forces, Although the animal was normally hyper, uh, he had become increasingly lethargic while at the house. One time, the dog almost choked itself because it tried to scale the fence, um, or so the book would have readers believe. I don't know if this was an actual story or not. I don't like that. Yeah, anything happens with the dog, I don't don't want it. No, no. Leave animals alone. 2K19. (laughs) Like, just leave Uh, them alone. Yeah, I I I don't like it. I don't demons demons why (laughs) Uh, one of the more chilling events in anson's book was when george awakened to the sound of a marching band in the living room (laughs) he claimed to race downstairs and entered the room only to find dead silence and the furniture pushed to one side okay but i like i love that yeah (laughs) that's that's still really funny you wake up from a deep sleep and you hear something and you're like is that is that a marching band if I were a demon, like... That's what I hear in my nightmares, a marching band, because I was in marching band, so... Okay, that's every once fair. In while, every once in a while, I'm like, oh my god, I forgot something, and I'm like, wait, I'm, I haven't been in marching band for, like, ten years. I was gonna say, like, a deputy, that's <laughs> creepy, that's scary to me. Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, at least it's a demon with a sense of humor. I guess. Um, Could be worse. But only 28 days um, after the family had moved in, they claimed that they couldn't take it anymore. They grabbed a few belongings that they had and left the house, and they took shelter at Kathy Lutz's mother's home in nearby Babylon, Long Island. Okay. So they didn't even stay there a full month. Would you? No, probably not. I, I'd After be out all within, those like, things. I wouldn't have... I, I, I take that back. I'm a cheap person, so I would have probably been, like, 80000 for a house. Sign me up um yeah but once once the priest was like don't let anybody sleep in that room and no i'm peacing out but that's that that is a really interesting question would you buy a house that you knew somebody died in would not died murdered yeah let us know also is this the time when i guess it is when they had to disclose it used to be that realtors did not have to disclose that somebody died no, or they, was murdered? they definitely had to disclose. It was like a highly yeah. publicized case, too. Yeah. Well, no, because even there, there's like a statute of limitations, so to speak, on that, too, where people do not, like real estate, real estate agents, I think it's after 10 years or something like that, depending on the state, I believe. Well, they the Lutzes bought don't this house to. 13 months after. Oh, no, I know. It, it was like... Yeah. Not enough time for the dust to settle, but I'm saying that there are people who very well may have bought one of these houses not knowing. Not knowing, yeah. Because of the statute of limitations. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I I don't know if I'd be able to do that. I, I, I do. Just, I would. I would get too much in my head and be like, that's uh, creepy. Everything that you would say is normal in any other house would suddenly become abnormal. Exactly. And yeah. I just, not about it. Not about like it. Like when my house oozes green slime, I'm just like, oh, this is like just the house. I'm like, oh, this shit again. <laughs> yeah. You know um, how you do. Yeah. Um, so now getting into the famous Warren investigation. So... 20 days after the Lutzes left the house, paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren were called in by Marvin Scott, who was a news reporter with Channel 5 NY, who had covered the Amityville story and worked on a prior investigation with the Warrens. Also, a quick so, RIP to Lorraine and to Ed. Ed has been dead well, for a while, yeah. but Lorraine recently passed away. Recently passed, yeah. So, so I just wanted to throw that in. Sorry. I didn't mean <laughs> to okay. interrupt. Um, a team of reporters, investigators, and parapsychologists were assembled by Ed Warren and met at 112 Ocean Avenue, and the Lutz family refused to re-enter the home. The home. So, of course, it was 28 of the worst days of their lives, so why would you want to go back in there? I can't blame them at all. No. So, during the investigation, Ed was reportedly physically pushed to the floor while using some religious provocation in the basement. Lorraine was also overwhelmed by a sense of demonic presence that plagued her by um, psychic impressions of the DeFeo family bodies laid on the floor covered in white sheets. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's 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 pretty strong. Yeah, that's a strong vision to have. Yeah, that's... But also, like, lightly calling bullshit, like... They knew the history of the house before they went in. It's not like they went in like blind. They just took these people into this house and like all all of a sudden she knew about six people that had been murdered there. So That's fair. It's also calling like light bullshit. Yeah, that's fair. Um where was I? I don't know. Where were you? Uh, also she had a sense of uh physically being pushed back. Um, the research team also reportedly captured an image of a spirit that appeared as a little boy appearing from the second floor. It was said that the land was found to be used by um, John Ketchum, who was a practicing black magician, and that uh, previously that land had a cottage on it prior to the um, construction of the house that was there. And John requested that his remains be buried on the property and they allegedly remained there until this day. This is all bullshit. None of this happened. But yeah. that was a big thing in the Warren investigation. They were like, oh, well, like his remains were on this land and blah, blah, blah. Very um, poltergeist. Yeah, I can see the that. Land. Yeah. Hear that. Imagine that. Yeah. So the... I'm sorry if I'm wrong. Uh, Shinnecock Indians? I think that's what it is. If not, I am deeply sorry. Um, But they also supposedly at one time had an enclosure on the land that was used to house the sick and mad. And those in this enclosure were left there to die. And the Warrens believed that the suffering there had left the property with a very negative energy and a dark history. And they believed that such a negative history was a magnet for demonic spirits and the preternatural 
and that these energies directly impacted the lives of both the DeFeos and the Lutzes. And the Warrens retrieved a handful of the Lutzes' possessions and the deed for the property. And the Lutzes then sold the rest of their belongings and relocated to California. So the Ocean Avenue home was purchased for $80,000 by the Lutz family in 1975. It sold for $950,000 in 2010. And there were no further reports of any type of paranormal activity from any recent residents. Hmm. So those two cases and then done. Normal house now. I don't know that I believe that. (laughs) Maybe they're just afraid to say anything because they don't want to get swept up in all the hysteria. Basically, that's that's what I'm thinking, just because I, I can't imagine that something so powerful can just suddenly be gone. I don't know. I, I think it's all bullshit. But before I get into why it's all bullshit, um, so the house at 112 Ocean Avenue has been vastly remodeled since the late 70s, and it no longer resembles the structure depicted in the films. It was purchased by new owners for $605,000 in 2017, according to Newsday. The address has also been changed to 108 Ocean Avenue, and it's no longer for sale, but the Zillow estimate says that it is $489,000, sorry, (laughs) $489,000. I I wrote it wrong. I don't know what the Zillow estimate is. I'm not going to look it up right now. Um, But it's less than what it was bought for in 2010. I, I think the 2010 um purchase was just for how famous the house was probably because it was just under a million dollars yeah that's well i don't know i think it depends on the area too because that could be for a house that size that could be pretty normal and adequate yeah i guess but then when it was purchased in 2017 it was only six hundred and five thousand. I don't know, maybe maybe somebody came back. Maybe someone who was told to leave came back, like, you know, maybe. ghosts tend to do. I guess. Um, so Kathy Lutz died of, uh, I think it was emphysema in 2004, and George died of heart disease in 2006 after uh-huh. the two divorced in 1980. Oh. And Butch DeFeo remains incarcerated to this day. Good. Yep. No sympathy there. No. But now to why it's all bullshit. So (laughs) the truth behind the Amityville horror was finally revealed when Butch DeFeo's lawyer, William Weber, admitted that he, along with the Lutzes, quote, created this horror story over many bottles of wine. End quote. What? Yeah. The house was never really haunted. The horrific experience that they had claimed uh, that they had experienced were simply made up. Jay Anson further embellished the tale for his book, and by the time the film screenwriters had adapted it, any grains of truth that might have been there were long gone. While the Lutzes profited handsomely from their story, Weber had planned to use the haunting to gain a new trial for his client, and up until his death, George Lutz reportedly claimed that the events were mostly true, but offered no evidence to back up the claim. The Lutz's account was likely influenced by another fictionalized story, that of The Exorcist. In fact, it is not much of a stretch to suggest that The Exorcist strongly influenced the Amityville horror, 
The Exorcist came out in December of 1973, and the demonic possession and hauntings were very much in the public's mind when the Lutzes spun their story of diabolical activity a year or two later. And the revelation that the story was based on a hoax has led to embarrassment, especially among a handful of paranormal experts who quote-unquote verified the fictional tale. The Lutzes must have had a good laugh at the expense of the ghost hunters and self-proclaimed psychics who reported that their terrifying visions um, and verified the house's non-existent demonic residence. To this day, the Omnival horror story is um, was admitted as a, uh, a hoax, and it's still not widely known. Um, as we will often say, the truth never stands in the way of a good story. So, though the story was made up by the Lutzes and further sensationalized by Anson in his book, there were real victims of the Amityville Horror, and in addition to the murdered DeFeo family, the subsequent occupants of the Amityville home have su suffered a continual stream of harassment by curiosity seekers, horror fans, and gawkers who want to photograph and tour the infamous house. And there have been people who, fooled by the films and book's tagline, think they are partaking in works based on true events. So, on that note, do not go and try to take pictures no, of they don't like the it. Amityville Horror House. No. I will say that uh, Elliot was um, in a show around the corner from the Amityville Horror House. So, on the way home, we just drove around the corner. Yeah. I saw the house. I did not try to take a picture of it or knock on the door or get onto the property in any way. There is a fence that says no trespassing. So, and I think that was put up don't relatively be a piece of recently. Shit. Um, I don't the know fence. when it was put up. I, re I remember that making the news within the past, at least like the past five years or so, because it was, I think it was around the time that, the house was bought again because yeah. people were just getting way too brazen. Well, it's like um, I went to New Mexico uh, for my birthday last year. You did. And we drove around some of the sites of Breaking Bad because it's one of my favorite shows. Right. So we drove by the Walter White house and there's a giant fence up that says like, don't park in front of the house. Take your pictures from across the street. Like, because people would keep, would go there and do the scene from Breaking Bad where he throws the pizza on the roof. I don't know. Oh my. But yeah, I don't know people, it, but like, that's got to suck. Yeah. People would just go and try to throw pizzas on the roof. And I'm like, why do you got to be a piece of shit? Like people actually live there. That's. And like, that's I'm so all about. Rude. Yeah. I'm all about like going to see like. Um, famous horror sites or famous uh, TV or movie sites or something. But you got to be respectful. Like, I parked across the street. We didn't, like, get out and go up to the fence. I just took the picture, and that was it. Didn't bother anyone. Didn't try to look in any windows. Like, why got a piece of shit? <laughs> it's That's, disrespectful. Why, so if you, why are we like this? I don't know. But society. if you live in the uh long island area or are going to visit or are doing a big tour of um haunted houses or horror sites or whatever just be respectful because people do live there and like i've said this whole thing is a bullshit lie <laughs> 
So there's nothing to see there. It's fine. It's okay. Be good people. Yeah, that seems like a good message throughout. Just be good people. Just be. Don't kill your entire family. (gasps) Yes. Don't don't like not tell a family after you exercise a house that you heard a man say get out. Yeah. And also just don't trespass. Yeah. I feel like those are some good rules to live by. Yeah, those are good rules. I like them. Decent. Decent. Um, now I'm going to get into the pop culture side because there's oh, a ton of it. Oh, yes. So there's like a, th- a million books and a million movies. So the first book is, as I've referenced multiple times before, the Amityville Horror. The book that was written that started the whole thing in 1977 by Jay Anson. Okay. And there was another book written in 1979 by parapsychologist Hans Holzer called Murder in Amityville, and that serves as kind of the prequel to Jay Anson's novel. And then there was another one called The Amityville Horror Part 2, which was written in 1982 by John G. Jones, and it serves as the sequel to Jay Anson's book. And then John G. Jones wrote multiple uh, sequels after that, such as Amityville, The Final Chapter, Amityville, The Evil Escapes, Amityville, The Horror Returns, and Amityville, The Nightmare Continues. Okay. Yeah, quite a a few of them. Um, We also have um, about the actual DeFeo murders. There's a book called High Hopes, the The Amityville Murders, and then we also have The Night the DeFeos Died. Um, what else do we have? We have a book called Mentally Ill in Amityville, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem at 112 Ocean Avenue by Will Savvy. Hmm. And we have another parapsychologist, Stephen Kaplan, wrote a novel called... Actually, I don't know if it was a novel. It might be um, nonfiction. Uh, the Amityville Horror Conspiracy. So I will try to put all of those compiled on a Goodreads list. Definitely some interesting reading. If you want to read about the craziness of what allegedly happened, you can go Amityville Horror. If you want um, a more detailed of the conspiracies, you can go some of the nonfiction. Cool. But anyway, what people probably know is the movies. So Mm -hmm. the Amityville Horror came out in 1979 And the critics' consensus was, which I was actually surprised by, it was dull and disappointing. The best that can be said for the Amityville Horror is that it's a low bar for its many sequels and remakes. Huh. Which I always thought people loved the Amityville Horror. Yeah, no, I'm a little surprised. But at the same time, I mean, at least they didn't massively lay into them. Like, well, it got a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. And yeah, then an audience great. score of 52. So it might be one of those that has more of like it, its own cult following rather yeah. than like the critics loved it. So right. that's what I'm choosing to, to get. Yeah, from that. I think that's safe. Yeah. We also have uh, Amityville 2, The Possession, which was in 1982. And it's a Mexican-American co-production film based on Han Holzer's 1979 book, which, as I said, was the sequel to the Amityville. Um, it got a Rotten Tomato score of 11%. Oh! Yeah, and an audience score of 35%. Another fun one was Amityville 3D, 
which came out in 1983, and it was made in 3D, as the title would suggest, and it was also released as Amityville 3, The Demon, and it's another uh, Mexican-American co-production film, and the critics' consensus was a, gim- a gimmicky Amityville retread with insufferable characters. <laughs> Do you want to guess what the Rotten Tomatoes score of this movie was? I'm going to guess. I'm going to give it... Can I give you a hint? Sure. It's a single digit. I was going to say, I'm going to go with a two. It's got a five. It's better than you thought. See, I'm pleasantly surprised. (laughs) Yeah, got an audience score of 19%, so a little bit better. Yeah, I Um, mean, still still a single digit. Still not great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's still Um, not great. 1989 took us to Amityville 4, The Evil Escapes, again, based on one of the, um, the books. But this one was knocked down to a TV movie. No Rotten Tomato score, but an audience score of 11%. They don't do... Okay. But still not great. Nope. Still a little and then rough. <laughs> in 1990, we get knocked down one peg lower to direct to film movie, which uh, it's a Canadian production, The Amityville Curse. I don't have any info besides the name of this movie. I, I've... And then I'm going to say that most of the rest of these are all direct to film. I'm trying to find out which one has the worst score out of all of them. And I'm thinking that it is The Amityville Asylum from 2013, direct to film. Guess what the score is? Um, I'm going to I'm going to go back to my regular two. I'm going to go back to my I'm going to stick with two. It got a three. God damn 3%. it. Three percent. And that's just an audience score. Rotten Tomatoes didn't even want to score it. Didn't, like, no. They were like, we're not going to do this. No. Um, but in 2005, we had the Amityville Horror, which was a remake of the original film. And I think this was the one that had, was it Ryan Reynolds? Who was in this Probably. movie? Probably. Ryan Reynolds was in one of them. Yeah. I think this was the Ryan Reynolds one. So the critic consensus was a so-so remake of a so-so original Ooh. <laughs> I like that critic's consensus. Kitty's got claws. Jeez. <laughs> so Rotten Tomatoes score 24%. Audience score 52%. So they liked it a little bit more. But I think the highest rated... Yeah, well, yeah, the audience score of the original was 52% also. And I think that's the highest rated out of any Amityville movie. Huh. Okay. There was also one... In 2018, called the Amityville Murders, and this one focuses on the DeFeo murders, but kind of makes it like uh, Butch DeFeo was seeing demons or something. I don't know. I saw the the trailer for it. I'll probably post it on the website. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it had a limited theatrical release. Obviously, it got. Oh no, this one got the the highest audience score. It got a, an audience score of 77 percent. Surprisingly. And a Rotten Tomatoes score of nine. There we are. There we are. I knew it was somewhere. Yeah. So another fun thing was there was a movie called Bloodbath at the House of Death. And it is a 1983 comedy horror film starring British comedian Kenny Everett and featured Vincent Price, who we all know and love Love. from everything. (laughs) literally from everything though if anybody is looking for any specifics he's the guy in the beginning of thriller yes 
that's what I, and that's my go-to the beginning and end of thriller but usually you're so hyped the by the end of thriller the... yeah i don't know i don't remember if his voice was at the beginning i thought it was always just at the end they don't play it on the radio i don't think like oh, really? the, f- the full the full ass version as opposed hmm. to the half-ass version um but no he's he does like All a right. beginning bit and an end bit because if you watch the music video i believe that's what goes on too yeah oh and he was in edward scissorhands that's another one yes uh wasn't he in this is just gonna turn into the vincent price show i know well, well we have to do a whole episode on vincent price we I do fucking love him we do was he in fall of the house of usher he was in a poe adaption i feel like the answer is yes but it could also have been the telltale heart no it was a pit in the pendulum i think that's not the fall of the house of house of usher no i don't remember he could have been in all of those some someone's <laughs> yeah remember. someone's yelling right now anyway he's a classic and I'll i find love him. It. so he was in this comedy horror film and it's an over-the-top spoof loosely inspired by the amityville horror and other horror films of the same period um there was also very interestingly a 2012 documentary focused on um, Daniel Lutz, who was the child of the Lutz family, um, called My Amityville Horror, and it's his side of the story regarding all of the events. That documentary got a Rotten Tomato score of 73% and an audience score of 39%. Okay. And then I think it looks like there's two more documentaries that I have on here, one called Shattered Hopes, The True Story of the Amityville Murders, and Amityville Horror or Hoax, which was in 2000. So that's that. So that's that. I'm oh, what I oh. didn't mention at the beginning of the episode <laughs> is that this was, um, this episode was part of our Patreon poll. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. So if you join our Patreon at a certain level, I don't remember what it is. It might be the $10 level. Then, I, will, um, I will verify that for you yes right now then you will have access to a private patreon only poll where you get to vote on one of the episodes that comes out the next month so our may patreon subscribers voted for um the amityville horror to be this month so and again that, that is, is our ten dollar oh sorry go ahead i'm sorry i love you i love you sorry <laughs> it's okay. um, that was it that is our ten dollar tier by the way so for a Fantastic. meager, for a two drinks and a cake pop at Starbucks, you can either send us those yeah. or you can choose what you want us to talk about. For most of the Taco Bell menu, you <laughs> could either do that and have explosive diarrhea or you could <laughs> vote on what episode to have. And have explosive fun. Yes. <laughs> We're great um, at this promotion thing. We are, and we're great at this research thing, too, because, for the record, Vincent Price was in, I'm counting, four, possibly five Edgar Allan Poe-based movies. I one. know he, he was, but was one of them Pit in the Pendulum? And the other was Fall of the House of Usher. He was! I knew it. <laughs> and The Mask of the Red Death and The Raven. Yes. And oh, that's The just, Raven is a fantastic movie. It's it's sad. Lenore is dead, but it is a good movie. I love it. He's just he's a creepy dude. He I love him. I love yeah, him. Yeah, he's su- he's super creepy, but I love him so much. Super creepy, super dead. I want him to be my like creepy godfather. Okay. <laughs> Cuz I don't want him to be sure. my dad. I like my dad. 
I, I, I just, I'm fine with just admiring from afar. No, I want, I want a piece of him in some way. Okay. Right. Okay. It's really hot in here and I have to turn the AC back on. So we're going to have to end this now. It's because you're here. Yeah. So go to the website, crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, we'll have a bunch of links. Uh, we'll get that Goodreads list going of all the Amityville books that you will be reading on the beach this summer. Um, yeah. There'll be trailers to all the shitty Amityville movies, pictures of the house, all that jazz. Cool. <laughs> I'm 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 ready to be like haunted just for talking about this. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Cuz yeah. I, I called all of it bullshit, so yeah, let's and see I'm how that works out. I'm prepared that we are going to have to face some consequences. So that's going to be fun. That's going to be a great time. It's going to be cool. Get at me. Please don't. <laughs> Please anyway, do not. Uh, when you go to the website, you will see all of the links to all of our social media for the Facebook, Instagram, mm-hmm. Twitter, blah, 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 blah. You can and join our Patreon, like we said. Yeah. And email us. And also write us a review on iTunes. Let us know yeah. what you think. I would email love for us. You to write no- also, let us know what you think. DM us. Also, let us know what you think. Just we 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 love a good opinion. Also, at crime um, culture. Every once in a while, someone will post on their Instagram story of them listening to the podcast, and it it got to so many people that we were like putting it into our story, and I just love them all so much. So I made a special story highlight on our Instagram page called listener love so if you post and tag us in your instagram story of you listening to it or rocking out to the theme song which is hilarious and i love um we will put you in that little highlight so just cemented forever just cemented forever and i I look at them when i'm sad because it's it's very fun i love it when people are posting about the show which makes me very very happy oh that's sweet I'm never happy. Okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be happy when I turn the AC on. So bye. Bye.